Oh God, what a, what a poignant reminder that we've been designed, created, and bred by the God of the universe for that sweet hour alone with you, hearts open to each other. Please give us the grace and the courage to insert it into our already busy lives. Given, this, this, given the journey of this nation right now, now more than ever, dear God, that sweet hour of prayer. Bless us now in the Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. History is woven with the lives of brave and influential widows, famous widows. You know them. In fact, I'm going to put them on the screen for you right now. You guess who it is. When you see the face, guess who that widow would be. Face number one. Who's that? You have to be a history major to get that. That's Mary Todd Lincoln, Mrs. Lincoln. Face number two. Now, you have to be from the UK to get that one. That's Queen Victoria. Come on. That's Queen Victoria. Face number three. Yeah, Americans know that face quite well, actually. Face number four. Still alive, very much and well. Coretta Scott King. Face number five. Let's see how you do on this one. Alive today. Do you recognize that face? She is the national hero, Nobel Peace Prize winner of Burma, Myanmar, Aung San Suu Kyi. There she is. And well-known newscaster put the last face up. Do you know who that belongs to? Yep, that's Katie Couric. The list of famous widows is a long one. But the list of not-so-famous widows is even longer. Reading a book review about a widow author named Becky Aikman, her book, Saturday Night Widow, Saturday Night Widows, from the review, put it on the screen for you. When suffering from the loss of a loved one, the grief can seem so insurmountable that it feels like there's no way around it or through it. Especially acute can be the loss of a spouse. There's some of you listening right now that know how to go on without the person you partnered with for life. Becky Aikman's Saturday Night Widows is her personal story of being newly widowed and seeking out other widows to try new ways of coping with grief. Spurred by their new friendship, these six women found even greater meaning in their work and their families than they had known before losing their partner." End quote. Brave widows, young widows, not-so-young widows, elderly widows in this parish, we have many of you. You may be sitting near one of these women right now. We're talking about human beings to whom I, I, I tip our collective hat. This new little mini-series, The Widow Factor, we're talking about human beings who have to go on living and loving, who have to go on serving and working, who have to go on worshiping, who must survive without that young or not-so-young life partner. And in the midst of the grief, they go on suffering because a widow's grief never ends. 
The mourning subsides, but the grieving never fully wanes, even if she remarries. And I happen to know, because my mother, God bless her, my mother, no matter how happy her remarriage, will never stop missing my father. And so we begin the widow factor, three widows, three stories, three compelling reasons why we too, like they, can live on the edge with God. Let's go. Story number one. This dramatic story begins with the words, the brook dried up. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 17 in your Bible. 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17. I'll be in the New International Version. Didn't bring a Bible. You got your little device. Find it there. Pull the pew Bible out. It's page uh, 247 in your pew Bible. Uh, We got a visitor in church today. I never like to be up here alone, so that's helpful. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 7. Sometime later, this is from the NIV, sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, look, we haven't even gotten to the widow yet, but we run headlong into this compelling piece of truth. And I want you to stick this away because you're going you're gonna to call it back one day. And here's that piece of truth. When the nation is under judgment, divine judgment, the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous mutually suffer the consequences. That seemingly innocuous point is vital for you and me to learn as we face the future in a nation that is rapidly, and I've got to say this up front, rapidly before our very and stunned eyes, you cannot believe what we're seeing now in this nation. You want to talk about the political process? Let's not. Let's keep worshiping. The nation is moving under judgment. From Almighty God. My friend Tim Aka, a chartered investment financial finance analyst, presently investment officer for the General Conference, a member of this congregation. He flies back and forth. His wife Sharon is here, heading up the distance learning at the NAD and here on campus. Tim wrote a provocative book entitled Endgame Economics, in which are these words. Put them on the screen for you. History has shown that out of control debts. Private banking cartels, money printing, runaway inflation, and co-opted leaders result in economic ruin and the downfall of empires. Yet governments and central banks are trying to convince people that this time will be different. But sadly, this time will not be different. The media pronounces that all is well. Housing prices are bouncing back and jobs are being created. But any signs of recovery are just a mirage. There is no recovery, nor can there be, because this time will not be different. Just track the cycles. Then Tim inserts a rather graphic illustration to buttress this point, and this is his line here, that the financial world is being led by those who are looking out for their own survival. He says, let's imagine that the global economy is a crowded airplane. You're on the plane, I'm on the plane. This plane is running out of fuel. It is almost on empty, and it is way too far from a runway to possibly land. And so what does the, what does the pilot do? He, he throttles up. He lifts the nose of that plane. It's climbing higher and higher and higher until he can reach the right height so that those who have the golden parachutes can jump out of the plane while the rest of us are strapped in, and you can picture it. 
Now, Akka makes this point. Sadly, many passengers in this imaginary plane are convinced that this ascent that's in the, in the economy is a sign of better days to come. But could they only see the fuel gauge, their optimism would turn to panic, despair, and rage, end quote. But the truth is, ladies and gentlemen, in a nation under divine judgment, your golden parachute will not save you in the end. Trust me, all parachutes collapse. Verse 7, 1 Kings 17, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. In case you haven't noticed, the brooks in our land are already drying up. I'm not just talking about physical brooks. I'm talking about financial brooks. I'm talking about moral brooks. I'm talking about spiritual brooks. They are drying up. Gone. Oh, and we can save and hoard all the water we wish. Oh, I'm going to save this for a rainy day. But when we go back to it, it has evaporated. It's all going. And the brooks dried up. Even for the righteous, the water is gone, which means that Elijah, a very close friend of God's, as it turns out, because one day when God would become flesh and stand on a mount of transfiguration, Elijah will show up from heaven and say, I've come, dear divine friend, to encourage you in your mission. Even the closest friend of God in the book of Kings... The water dries up. The brook dries up for him. There's no get-out-of-jail-free card for the righteous, which is not to suggest that God won't take care of you. I mean, look at Elijah enjoying room service with a flock of ravens morning and evening, bread and meat, bread and meat, bread and meat. Of course, he is on the lamb. He's running. He's having to hide for his life. Because all the king's horses and all the king's men have been searching for this bushy-bearded, camel-haired, wind-bitten stranger from out of that little village of Tishba who had the gall to come storming into the king's inner throne room. And before a guard could lift a finger, the prophet pointed his finger at this apostate and wicked king named Ahab, and he thundered, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will not be a drop of water, not a drop of dew, until I say so. And then he vanishes to God's hiding place, which turns out to be the brook of Cherith. We used to say Cherith, but it's Cherith. 1 Kings 17, verse 7, sometime later the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Verse 9, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow, there she is, I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. May I point out to you that this widow we are about to meet is pagan. She's from Zarephath. That, that, that's in the region of Sidon or Sidon, which happens to be the neighborhood, the very land, happens to be the neighborhood of the very wicked Jezebel who through matrimony has brought a demonic infestation to the people of God through the prophets of Baal. This lady's the next door neighbors with Jezebel. She worships the same false god. She calls on the same Baal or Baal. And yet the God of Israel, isn't that something? The God of Israel knows this woman by name, and he knows her address. What's up with that? Pagan though she is. Wow. Uh, clearly, God has a heart for pagans, doesn't he? Chooses her to serve his appointed messenger. In fact, Jesus' own words evoke this very point. 
so unmistakably that the worshipers in his hometown that day when Jesus spoke these words are ready to kill him and attempt to do it as soon as the worship service is over and he's standing at the back shaking hands. They're out to kill him now. They put Jesus' words on the screen for you. Luke chapter 4. In that sermon in hometown Nazareth, I tell you the truth, Jesus continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He's just one of the boys. I assure you, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Go figure. God chooses a pagan widow over all the saved widows in that land. Can you imagine that? What's up with this? Apparently, God's eye is not only on the sparrow, but also on the pagan who is living up to all the light she, little or almost no light, but she's living up to it as best as she knows how, and God's eye is on her. Remember the Chinese woman I told you about? Remember that? Last time we were together? Yeah. Just came back from that two-week uh, evangelistic mission to China in the city of Xiamen. You remember? Buddhist temple. I see her. Crowd whirling around her. She's acting as if she's all alone with her God, a golden Buddha. And you remember that look of anguish that I described, that this, this utter desperation. Something is breaking this woman's heart, and I'm standing there absolutely frozen. I cannot move. I can't take a picture. She, this is too holy a moment. She is pleading her heart out. And by the way, I want to thank those of you, God bless you, who have contacted me and said, you know what, Dwight? I'm praying for that woman too. Good on you. Good on you, because I'm still praying for her. Her heart is breaking. Something has broken it. She's pleading. And I made the point then, and I'm going to make it all over again. Wrong God, but the right God hears the misguided prayer and answers it. Got a letter from a viewer saying, hey, that can't be true. You've got to come to God in the name of Jesus. Oh, yes, you do. If you're a follower and disciple of Jesus, you've got to come in the name of Jesus. But what about the billions who lived before Jesus was here? Were their prayers all not answered? Of course not. I can't imagine the God of this universe saying, oh, wrong language, can't hear you. <laughs> Talk to my hand. My face ain't listening. I can't imagine that at all. Clearly, God has a heart for pagans. This widow has been pleading with God to save her life, save the life of my little boy. And guess what? Praying to the wrong God, but the right God hears her prayers and answers her prayer. It's just about to be answered while we're watching. One more reason, by, one more reason by, by the way, why you and I need to have hearts for, we need to have hearts for the pagans as well, the, the, our pagan associates, our pagan acquaintances, our pagan neighbors, our, our pagan playmates, our pagan world. We need to have God's heart for them as well. So what is this, verse 10? So, so Elijah, God gives the instructions. Elijah went to Zarephath. Verse 10, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. And so Elijah's thinking, man, I wonder if this is the widow. I wonder if this is the woman. How do I know? There could be a widow beyond the gate. Let me just try this out. And so he calls out to the woman picking up the sticks, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And something in this bushy-bearded, camel-haired-clothed stranger, obviously not from these parts. 
probably an Israelite, maybe a holy man. Something about him impresses her. She turns to get him a few drops of water. She'll find somewhere when he says, yo, just a minute. I thought about something else. I'm really hungry. Sorry to do this to you. I'm really hungry. Could you also make me some food? Bring me a little bit of bread, then you take care of your family, whatever needs you have. Wow. The woman turns to him in verse 12 and says, as surely as the Lord your God. Aha, he he is an Israelite. I know the name of that God, Yahweh. As surely as Yahweh your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. It'll be the last meal on earth because there's nothing left in that pantry. Zero, nada, nothing. not easy being a widow, is it? Unless your husband left you a nest egg of earnings, of savings, of a retirement fund, it's not easy being a widow, particularly if you're young. And we have young widows. You're too young, you're too poor to retire, or if you have children that have to be fed and clothed and educated and need health insurance, it's not easy being a widow, period, in any period of history. But of With all the sincerity I can muster, I need to say, if you're a widow listening right now or watching right now or here right now, I need to say, there is a God in this universe who loves you dearly and is committed to care for you. I love this picture of God. Oh, if you're a widow, don't ever forget it. Psalm 68, the psalmist, put it on the screen for you, this this word picture of God. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of widows. Is God, this God in his holy dwelling. God, oh, God sets the lonely in families. You know a widow? You know a widow, do you? God has given you the mission to set that lonely one in your family. He sets the lonely in families. Wow. Do you know what that means? Sister, widow, woman, that means God will take care of you. Be not dismayed, whatever be tight, God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide, God will take care of you. Sing it out. You know the chorus. God will take care of you through every day or all the way. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. And so Elijah says to the woman, verse 13, don't miss this. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. 
Go home and do as you've said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from that which you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel before whom I stand, this is what the Lord says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And so she hurried away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and for her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Apparently, ladies and gentlemen, apparently, when it feels like you're giving away your future, God steps up and gives you a brand new present. And that's present spelled N-O-W. Let me repeat that. When it feels like you're giving away your future, and that is precisely what the widow is doing. She has one meal left in her future. And God has just asked her, now, I want you to give that meal away. You give it to me. When you're giving away your future is when God steps up and gives you a brand new present, a brand new now, a new paradigm, because you dipped into the future for the sake of my present. Wow, what a God. God will take care of you. Through every day or all the way, He will take care of you. That's the point. Malachi 3.10. You ever heard this promise? Let me put it on the screen for you. Malachi 3.10. God speaking. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then I want you to do this. I want you to test me in this, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will take care of you through every day or all the way. Just bring to me my tithe. I want you to bring that water. Bring me that flour. Bring me that oil. Return it to me. Give me the security of your future, and I will open the floodgates of heaven and give you a present like you have never lived a now before in your life. Wow. I will take care of you. The young widow of Zarephath is enduring proof that God will take care of you. God will take care of me. God will take care of us. No matter what the times are ahead for this nation, He will take care of us. That little widow didn't have a... (laughs) That little widow didn't have a tithe envelope like this. She went home to the cupboard. You know what she did? She just cleared the whole thing. Just cleared it out. God is not asking that of you and me. Nope. All he quietly asks for is his tithe. Ten pennies given out to these kids. One of those belongs to me, God said. That's my tithe. Oh, and, and, and offerings. Ten percent and offerings. Well, what, whatever you can give. Dip into the future, sure, but uh, I'll give you a new present. Could be another ten percent for the offerings. There are people here that are already doing that, and there are many people here who are able to do that. Another 10 percent. Whatever your tithe was, just spread the rest out. It could be another 5 percent, maybe. 5 percent of your income. It could be another 2 percent. I want to share something fascinating with you. If everybody in this congregation, this is a university congregation, trust me, 
university professors, you know, they're not, they're not getting wealthy teaching at Andrews University. We're, we're a little university parish, but last year we gave over $5 million, returned over $5 million to God. I'll put that number on the screen for you. $5 million. You multiply that by uh, 10 to know the income of those who tithed. The aggregate income is $50 million sitting right here beside you right now. It's a lot of little, it's a lot of little, little tithes, but it's just all put together. Do you know what would happen if we said, hey, what if we gave 2% of our income? Okay, 10% goes back to God. It belongs to Him. But what if we took 2% from the other 90% that's left and we gave it to church operating just to keep this church going? Do you know how much that would be? 1% would be, come on, just before you put it on the screen, what's 1% of, uh, 1% of that income? 1% would be 500000 right? 2% would be twice that, a million dollars. Would you put that on the screen, please? A million dollars, 2%. If everyone who's tithing just gave 2%, I mean, you, you, you gave 10. You returned 10. Just two more. To church operating. That's line two in the tithe envelope. It's line two. You just put 2% there. We'd have a million dollars every year. Do you know what that funds? That funds a basket full of ministries like Sabbath schools and, and periodicals and office staff and physical plant and air and heat and insurance and a bunch of outreach ministries. Just 2%. We'd have a million dollars the end of every year. Wow. And then if you said, oh, no, wait, what about our church schools? Do I don't forget our church schools? Okay, let's throw our church schools in. If we gave only 1% to our church schools, you know, Ruth Murdoch Elementary School and Anderson Academy, I mean, Byron's up here. He's a, one of our faculty in both of those schools. If we gave 1%, let's put that on the screen, $500,000. 500, a half a million going to our little church schools. You know what? Our children would rise up and call us blessed. They'd say, wow, thank you. When you break it down, it's not a lot of money. It's tapping into your future for a new present. And God has a present for you when you step out for Him. Just ask that widow. He'll take care of you. Yes, He will. And by the way, I need to just insert this before I hurry on. Not a single penny will go to any of us pastors. Simply because all of us are paid out of the same, paid the same wage. By the way, you can pastor a 3,000-member church like this or a 30-member church in Michigan. You're same in California. It doesn't matter. Everybody's paid the same. But all of our, all of our our wages come from the World Tithe Fund of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And in our area, it's Lansing that administers that. Which means even if you don't give a penny in these offerings, even if you don't give a penny, we're still here, we're still here to love you and to bug you. And we'll keep bugging you. Mm-hmm. It just goes with, the, goes with the turf. Although the day is coming, let's get serious perhaps more rapidly than we are aware, when a moral and spiritual famine will sweep this nation into a time of judgment we have never experienced before. Just look at the faces. Just look at the faces of Americans now. Ask yourself, has something happened to this country? Of course something's happened to it. Somebody knows we're running out of time. Someone is ratcheting it up. It's happening while we're watching. Watch this political process to the end. You'll see. Israel, for all the blessings the Lord God had poured upon that chosen nation, rejected their creator, renounced their savior, and the rest is history. The tragic history of a nation, a land, a people who abandoned the God who had given them their blessings, just abandoned. The people who printed out all their money in God we trust and who eventually forgot that God, whoever he was. What's going to happen 
I carry, I scribble these words on the page for Revelation 13 in my Bible, written by a woman who lived about a century ago, and the words go like this. Upon all the nations, in all, of all the nations upon which the sun shines, none has been, has been blessed by God more than the United States. None. This nation has been blessed. We are under judgment. You will hear that again and again as we stretch into the future together. The times we have worried and fretted about Don't worry. God says, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. That little lady in a compilation called Last Day Events, I want to put this on the screen because this is good. There's a sentence that's kind of a, a, a throw-in because it's not the sentence I'm going to, but it comes first, and so I'm going to put it on the screen. You see it there. Dying charity is a poor substitute for living benevolence. And here's what dying charity is. Dying charity is, you know what? One of these days I'm going to die. When I die, I'm giving a big gift to God. Boy, I, just before I die, a big gift will go to God. Not now. Don't ask me to invest in the kingdom of heaven now. But when the day comes, just before I die, dying, dying charity is a poor substitute for living benevolence. Why, you, why hold the gift off? Why not invest in the kingdom while the money is still worth something? The day is coming when that money is dust, dust, nada, nothing, worth zero. And then how many of us will look at that now worthless account and say, my Lord, what did I do? <laughs> living benevolence. That's what life is, living benevolence. Keep reading. Now, here's the other sentence I want you to see, the other sentence up there. The wants of the cause will continually increase as we near the close of time. Guess what? The closer we get to the coming of Jesus, we're not going to be doing less. We must be doing more and more and more. The wants are going to go up as the income drops. The grass will be going the opposite ways. Wants, needs, income, down. Well, let's not just not give then. We do that at the peril of our souls. Giving does nothing to God. does nothing to God. It does everything to you everything to me. When I give, something is released in me, and my fingers let go. And that's what saves a heart for Jesus, letting go. The wants of the cause will continually increase as we near the close of time. Those wants go up at a critical time when economic stability and prosperity drop. I'm going to go to Tim Aka again, put it on the screen for you. So you've heard from a little lady from 100 years ago. Listen to this man who's writing right now. I don't know where he is today, but uh, this is his book, Economic Endgame. Here we go. These key economic factors seem to be converging to a critical point sometime in the very near future. The proverbial perfect storm is nearing, and we can track its progress by watching the developments in energy, food and water, debt, stock markets, and cost inflation. The final line, here it is. These forces are relentlessly driving toward an event horizon of economic chaos. Let me read that line one more time in case you missed it the first time. These forces are relentlessly driving toward an event horizon of economic chaos. Living on the edge with God, someday we will really know what on the edge is. 
But until that day comes, the little widow of Zarephath models for us a reaching into the future, drawing from what is security there, bringing it into the present, giving it to God, and letting Him grant us a brand new present, N-O-W, now. I end with this line, great controversy, that apocalyptic classic on the screen. The people of, oh, this is beautiful. The people of God will not be free from suffering, but they will not be left to perish. That God who cared for Elijah will not pass by one of his self-sacrificing children. He who numbers the hairs of their head will take care for them. And in time of famine, they shall be satisfied. Do you know why? Because God will take care of you through every day or all the way. God will take care of you. So why shouldn't you, why shouldn't I entrust Him with my little pennies? Let's pray. Oh, God, it's not rocket science. Talking heads. Brooding over what lies ahead for this nation. The brook will dry up. And then what? Oh, God, thank you for this widow who has modeled for us a heart willing to return to you what is yours and, that, and then let you bring that brand new present. In God we trust. Please, dear God, make that true of each of us. In the name of Him, who emptied heaven's treasury for us. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.